Hi folks, it's Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Hot Springs Village, Arkansas, high atop the Highway 7 Ridge Line from TSPN, the Survival Podcast Network headquarters. Today is January the 5th, 2012, and this is episode 814 of the Survival Podcast. We have a cool interview today, uh, Ted Lackerson who is the author of The Eagle Has Crashed, is joining us. We're going to talk a bit about his book. Uh, we're going to talk quite a bit about the United States economy and some of the political issues that are going on out there and how they affect us all and how they affect our future. Ted's a really cool guy. He'll be with us in just a moment. Before I bring him on, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by making sure the show's here for you five days a week, Monday through Friday. Sponsor of the day number one today, Safe Castle Royal. I always call them the original survival podcast sponsor. The reason I call them the original sponsors, they were the first sponsor. They were the first company that stepped up and said, hey, yeah, we like what you're doing and we want to be part of it and we want to formally be part of it. And uh, that was over three years ago. And their their third contract just came up for renewal and Vic said immediately, put us in for year number four. We're going to stick with you. That's loyalty. There's not a lot of people that keep sponsors that long in the internet on the internet in this day and age. And uh, all our sponsors have been with us a long time, but they've been with us. They're going into their fourth year now, so they're loyal to us. So when you need something uh, as a prepper, consider stopping by Safe Castle and seeing if they have what you need. And remember, they have a great discount buyers club. It's fifty bucks one time, and then it's that's actually forty nine. Call it fifty bucks one time, and then it's yours for the rest of your life. You get big discounts on just about everything they sell. But if you're a member, support brigade member, you get that discount membership for free. That's what I call being a good sponsor and a good supporter of the show. And what a great value for you guys as well. Next up today, backyard food production. That's Marjorie with her little operation down there south of Boston. If you want to know how to turn your backyard into a food production machine, you need to get the DVD, Food Production Systems for a Backyard or Small Farm, from BackyardFoodProduction.com. You'll see exactly how they are largely self-sufficient on their property, and you'll see how you can adapt your own property to do that, whether you have a small backyard, a small acreage, or even a large acreage. The systems that she'll show you are very adaptable and can be adapted to any individual situation, from suburban uh, to rural. Next up today, remember, you can connect with me on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. Those are the best social media outlets to get in touch with me. We've got a lot of cool stuff coming out, so uh, check them out. Last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you get exclusive content available only to member. You get uh, members, you get discounts to over 30 vendors, like the free Safe Castle discount membership that alone pays for your first year of membership. $49 value, $50 annual membership. Think about that. And you're supporting the show at about $0.20 cents an episode, actually 18.3 if you do the math. So if you think the show's worth two dimes an episode, consider joining just for that reason alone. Remember, military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty, or prior service. Email me with the details of your service prior to joining. I'll give you a special national service discount. 
Uh, one more thing, I'm going to do this a few times, just trying to build things up over there. If you want to know how I actually built Survival Podcast into a self-sustaining business, because you'd like to build, build a business of your own, I have a quick little podcast I'm doing on my drives into the office now, kind of like I did TSP in the beginning, where I was doing it on my drives to my office. Much shorter drive, much shorter show, runs about 10 to 15 minutes, but the show's called Five Minutes with Jack. It's available at jackspirico.com. If you're kicking around the idea of starting up your own blog or podcast or something, come on over there, man. I'll share everything I do that's made this show the success that it is. I hide nothing, and I charge nothing. There's nothing there you can buy from me. There are a few affiliate banners, but hey, everybody's got to try to make something out of something. Put a site together about making money and didn't make any money. It wouldn't really make a lot of sense. Anyway, jackspirico.com is that site. Uh, with that, I'm ready to introduce our special guest, and our guest again is Ted Lackerson. Uh, Ted is a writer and commentator known in the blogosphere as the country thinker. He's uh, previously practiced as an attorney for a major international law firm and worked as a structural designer in the shipbuilding industry. Uh, Ted lives in the rolling hills of his home state of Ohio with his wife and son. He's here today to talk to us about his recently released novel, The Eagle Has Crashed, which is a near-future novel set from around 2029 to 2030. It's the story of the day America's national debt leads to an economic meltdown. It's a very interesting book, one you might want to pick up and add to your prepper library. And, you know, on top of it all, we're going to also talk about some stuff with politics and economics because Ted pretty switched on in those realms. And with that, hey, Ted, welcome to the Survival Podcast. I'm really happy to be here. Thank you for bringing me on. Um, you know, your book's pretty cool. And I love the title, by the way. Um, I don't love the prophecy of the title, but I, I think it was a very creative and clever title, uh, The Eagle Has Crashed. For members of the audience who haven't read it yet, could you give us kind of a brief summary about, you know, what is the storyline and what is the plot and that type of thing? Yeah, sure. Great. Uh, the Eagle Has Crashed is the story of the day when our national debt leads to an economic crisis and the fallout and anger that occurs at policymakers for letting this uh, disaster happen. Now, most of it is set in my home state of Ohio, in central Ohio, and the characters are meant to be like friends and neighbors and maybe even like you, because if we do in fact experience a major debt crisis like we're seeing going on in Greece right now, I think most of us are more concerned with how it will affect us and our friends and our family and our communities more than it will affect the, uh, the people in Washington who are creating this problem. Got you, man. Um... What do, what do you kind of, I mean, can you go a little deeper in, into the storyline for us there? I mean, it, a little little bit kind of like maybe a plot stealer a little bit, kind of tickle it a little bit for the uh, the audience? Yeah, ab absolutely. Uh, it takes place, it is set beginning in the year 2029, a decision I made because I wanted to get rid of, there are some scenes that take place in Washington with policymakers and politicians, And I wanted to get rid of all those people and put in new faces so people could listen to what's being said without the attachment of the names. Now, it starts in the beginning uh, of 2029, and the economy mysteriously starts falling apart. Policymakers, however, think it's just a blip, that things are going to bounce back. But it turns out that's not the case. We actually finally did reach the tipping point with our debt, and we begin a downward spiral. And... As things move along, uh, people begin to realize more and more that this is just going to continue getting worse. So really, a lot of the storyline is building up the reactions of people 
as time moves along, as unemployment goes up, as the other indicator, economic indicators continue to crash and really our debt begins to, to spiral out of control. Uh, I don't really want to give too much more than that, but that's really the basic gist is uh, following and uh, the, re- the reactions and policymakers as they make desperate attempts to try and patch things and things that don't work. And the uh, policymakers, Republicans and Democrats, and this is going to sound very, very familiar, they try to work together, but they just can't do it. Nothing gets done, and the situation just continues to deteriorate. It's funny, you probably were writing that long before the most recent examples of that. Um, one thing I would want to point out to people, though, is if some of them will listen to this and hear economic meltdown and think along another uh, fan fiction novel in the genre, Patriots. This is very, very different from that. This focuses a lot more on the problem, and the problem being more of a long emergency uh, than like overnight the whole thing just erupts into flames. Correct. That's... Uh because I, I think it's more realistic. I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the erupting into flames uh, for some pe- some people who really need slam bam action from the get go, it can make for a more sensationalistic story. But I thought it would be more interesting and more realistic, and perhaps a bit more frightening if this slowly builds and people. As they're opening their eyes, they say, what? Economic problem? I thought everything was fine. We just got out of a recession two years ago. This can't be going on. And then they begin to realize, uh-oh, we're in trouble. This really is the big one. I, I think it'll help people identify with it more, too, because it, things don't generally happen with that immediate, complete, you know, gone. It's, it's here one minute, gone the next. There are signs, and I think that your book will help people kind of recognize a lot of these things it, you know, in, in 2012 versus 2029. Correct. Uh, even though the uh, book is set, you know, in the medium term future, I guess you would say uh, it's not a terribly futuristic novel. So a lot of the things really are closer to, to present than now. The characters are more like. Uh, there's another novel of this genre by Albert Brooks, uh, set in 2030. His is very futuristic, and society has changed a great deal. I didn't want that particular angle, and I did love his book, by the way, but uh, I didn't want that angle because this is a message to today. So the things that are going on, it's really, uh, I began the project in December of 2009, and really I had the backstory, the model, uh, the economic model behind it, uh, the characters, all of that I had done by February of uh, 2010. It's really remarkable the number of things that have come true in some way, shape, or form uh, or have been discussed. Uh, a lot of the things in there, it, it's, it's really quite disturbing, and you can see that at the rate we're at right now, we're not waiting until 2029 for a problem. It's coming closer, and so that's part of the reason why I wanted this book to hit home and for the characters and society to be really quite like uh, what we live in today, not something uh, really from a science fiction novel. Well, what really kind of inspired you to do this? I mean, writing a book, as I, I know with my challenges of doing it myself, is an awful lot of work. I think it's far more work than most people uh, have any idea. You know, it's, 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 if you think of like the biggest term paper you ever did, multiply that by about a billion, and that's writing a book. Um, what, what kind of was the motivating force to get you to do this? Yeah, this, uh, and this story should hopefully, uh, or will, I believe, resonate with anybody who's, uh, been a parent. I, I recall very distinctly, uh, when the idea for this novel popped into my head. 
it was December of 2009, and my little boy was not yet three years old, and he was sitting in and he was sleeping in his toddler bed, and I went in there to look look in on him as parents often do before heading off to bed, and my mind kind of drifted there, but I read a quite a quite a number of uh, very dreary articles and editorials regarding the direction that our debt was hitting. And I looked down at my sleeping boy and I said, I just can't let this happen to him. And I started thinking about in my head, I said, gee, what is his life going to look like? What's it going to be like in 10 years? And then the more I started thinking about the characters, I said, uh, or the way it might affect our friends and family neighbors, I said, you know, I feel like this might be the uh, the basis of a of a compelling novel. I think this is something people would be interested in, and so it really was inspired by uh, I call it a Papa Bear instinct. I mean, I've been fairly active in politics for years and years and years, but let's face it, I was kind of asleep, and <laughs> I was waking up, and finally I said, "Oh my goodness, uh, you know, if a debt crisis strikes, I can I can take it on my own shoulders because you know I was asleep for years and." You know, I can live with it because it's a mess that I helped contribute to. But uh, a boy who's now four and a half years old, this isn't his fault. So this really, uh, I'm inspired to to write this to try and help prevent it. Well, are there some ways you think we can prevent it? I mean, because part of it, I look at it and go, yeah, there's some things we can be done. And on some things I look at and go, man, there's, like you said, we created the mess. And we created the mess and our parents created the mess and our grandparents created this mess. And I look at things like the municipal debt crisis. That's it's coming. I mean, I'm, I'm sure you know that too. Yes, it is. You know, so is there is there really anything that can be done now? I mean, if I gave you a gave you economic overlord of the United States for right now, and said for the next four months, it's your word as law on the economy. What are some things you think we could actually do at this point? Well, you have to look at uh, really what the origins of uh, of the crisis are, and it's mostly uh, three things really, really bode poorly for us. The, uh, because, of course, you, to find a solution, you must first identify the problem. And so the big problems, and there there are three. The first is Social Security. The second is Medicare. And the third is interest on our debt. Now, the interest on our debt problem could be the easiest to solve or maybe the hardest. At the rate we are going right now, uh, the estimates, I've, and I've got the budget numbers here from the Office of Manage, Management and Budget, we're supposed to be or expected to be paying, if things work out well, a trillion dollars a year on interest on our national debt. So that is why I say one of the things we need to do is we need to act sooner rather than later because, of course, like a credit card, the more you put on, the bigger that uh, debt service is going to be. So one of the things I, I, I believe is that, yes, so if you say four months, that's wonderful because we can start working on it now because we can help to uh, combat, I call it the 800-pound gorilla in the room because a lot of people see the Social Security and Medicare and don't realize that our interest costs may exceed either. Uh, now, the other two, realistically, what we need is good, strong leadership, and we need qualitative reform in both Social Security and Medicare. Uh, Social Security is actually the harder one to deal with, even though Medicare is the biggest problem. Uh, and the reason is, is that there's no money in Social Security. There, there's, there's nothing left. Well, so, the, the, just to be frank, the, the bastards took the money. I mean, the, the money was there. The program can sustain itself, but they take the money and spend it on things that are not Social Security. That's, abs that's absolutely correct. Uh, 
So the, the problem is, is, is what we're running to, and it's, it was oh so predictable because Europe is running into the, it has run into the exact same thing. It's called our demographics right now are messed up. A lot of people think of Social Security as a savings program, but because they chose to spend it all, as you as you've said, it, it, it isn't a spending program practically. It's an entitlement program in which we right now are paying for retirees. When we retire, it's going to be our children and grandchildren. It passes passes straight through. And the problem is, is we've got this thing called the baby boom generation. And the reality is, is and that's the really big threat, is that for those of us uh, in our generation, uh, I'm a generation X guy, I'm looking at the the waning years of my working years, trying to support an unusually large number of retirees. So it's that's it's it's the number of workers per retiree problem uh, because of the baby boomers that has Social Security looking very bleak for the next probably 60 years. Yeah, I mean, I, have you ever seen those TV shows where like they show like a little kid overseas and they say, you know, you can sponsor a child like, you know, Matumbo or whatever. And they send you his picture and all. It's getting to a point where we have like three people working to to support one retiree. And it may get to a one-to-one ratio, and at that point, they could literally send you a picture of like, and I'm not putting those people down because they paid in. You know, it's it's not their fault this happened, but it's the reality where you'd almost have like your own. This is like this is your retiree you sponsor, and, and you're going. <laughs> I, I'm five years away from retirement myself, or ten years, or hopefully ten years. You know, some of us are going. You know, if this keeps up, we're going to work twenty. Because uh, they keep talking about jacking up the retirement ages and things like that as well. I mean, if you go high enough, you'll die before you collect. You know, I mean, that's that seems like the plan. Yeah, uh, well, jacking up the uh, the age is one of the easiest ways to do it. Although every proposal I've seen there uh, has been. You know, it takes like 20 years for it to phase in, and I'm not sure that that's going to be en- enough to do what needs to be done. Because uh, so. yeah, we're the ones they're going to raise our retirement age, but we're going to pay for everybody that's already there and coming into it. That's it, that's great, you know. Well, if now there, and I, I will call on Albert Brooks 2030 again, not, and, and add in a uh, an editorial in the Wall Street, or not an editorial, an article in the Wall Street Journal about uh, aging. And right now they're working. They think they're close to some pretty big advances in aging. So living to be, say, 110 years is about to become considerably more common, or so they say. Now Brooks in his book had precisely the same thing: cancer was cured and people were living unusually long. Just think about what that would do to Social Security, uh, which is a scary thing about where where we've gotten with this uh, this Social Security mess. Is how awful is it to sit here and think, oh gosh, I hope they don't find a cure for cancer because it'll bankrupt our country. <laughs> but that's well, yeah. I mean, I'll... we had was it Time or People or somebody came out with the 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 story and they had the front page was a bed with a plug hanging out on the wall. It was like the case for pulling the plug on Granny. <laughs> I did not. I did not see. It, it was. It was like he almost went. Like that almost looks like it belongs in like an Orwellian movie or something. Like the, it was. It was. It was really kind of eerie. And they were making a legitimate case for you know pulling the plug. Which, frankly, if I am in a vegetative state and I'm not going to recover, yank it. You know. But that's a, that's my choice, not somebody else's choice. Yeah, I'm, I'm a uh, recovering attorney, and let me just tell you, get that in writing. It makes it a whole lot easier. <laughs> what did you say? You are a recovering attorney. Yeah, that's that's what uh, that's what I like to call myself. That's awesome. So hey, um, so Bob Murphy actually reviewed the models and called them optimistic. These economic models. Uh, what's optimistic about them if we still have a debt crisis? 
Well, this is this is what's optimistic about them. Uh, just to make sure that the listeners are up to speed here, uh, as part of my backstory, I created fictitious but realistic economic cycles, uh, inflation cycles, and uh, federal budgets. Because one of the things I wanted to do is I wanted to, to address and say, all right, really, I needed to kind of wrap my head around about the severity of the problem uh, to get it to to get us to stay away from some dangerous, generally accepted, uh, dangerously high debt levels. I had to do some pretty optimistic uh, feats. Now, for instance, uh, I reduce spending outside of the two big entitlements vastly more than. I think is politically feasible. For instance, for example, having seven to nine years of straight defense cuts. I don't think any of us think that Republicans will stand for that. But nonetheless, I had to cut somewhere to be able to get, uh, to get it to last that long. Uh, I increased tax revenues to record levels without, but, but I did it without there being any, uh, effect on our economic growth. And so you were able to raise taxes and not damage the economy. Great. That's, right? th- that's absolutely correct. Uh, Mr. Rogers neighborhood. Okay. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, well, that's what I'm saying. So I have yeah. quite, quite a few of these things. I, uh, intentionally kept interest rates on our debt, uh, in, intentionally low. I mean, for, based on the, the amount of debt, that we have, I kept it unusually low just because, again, I said that that's the 800-pound uh, uh, gorilla in the room that a lot of people aren't noticing yet, but that's the one that could – if we keep on stacking a trillion on top of trillion on top of trillion, if we see 6 or 7% interest rates on our debt, you can see what each year is piling on to that debt situation. So I also had really, I think, unreasonably low Let, – let's put it this way uh, – if you recall, did did we have our credit downgraded in August? Yeah, we did. Yep. Well, in my story, it doesn't happen until 2025 okay. <laughs> or, or somewhere around there. So there, I had a feeling it was going to come sooner, and frankly, I think we're going to get another one. And the problem with that is that 800-pound gorilla, when your when your credit goes down, the federal government is no different than you or I. If you know, no credit, bad credit. Yeah, but what kind of interest? What kind of interest rate are you going to pay? So uh, and you're also only going to be able to get very short-term debt at that point. You're going to have to churn it very, very quickly. You're not going to be selling 10-year notes. Uh, when somebody's afraid your credit might fail tomorrow. That's, that's absolutely correct. And, uh, that really is, is another problem. And fortunately, not quite as bad right now as it was a couple of years ago to try and take advantage of that low interest, uh, and interest rate. Our government went from a 10 and 30 year heavy portfolio to a lot of three and six and one year, uh, note problems. And a lot of that's coming to, to uh to roost or will come to roost in not too long. Yeah, um I mean I'm 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 just thinking it's kind of like the ab- absolute uh, opposite of what Reagan did. Reagan came in and took the short-term debt and turned it to long-term debt, which was uh, a bandage we would call it. It worked for a time. Um and but then eventually things have to return to kind of the meme. And and that's that's what I see here. Like we're going right back. It almost it looks like it looks like 1970 with uh, a little bit of uh, uh, Freddy uh, Krueger's nightmare thrown in just to make you feel good. <laughs> yeah, and really, and it is a little more 70s than certainly than the Federal Reserve is letting on at the present moment. Uh, they keep changing their uh, index. As a matter of fact, they just changed the inflation index about two years ago to a. Uh, to, to a measure that double weights housing, so this sinking housing market that we have is making inflation look lower than it really is. 
those of us on the street, and I, I'm guessing a lot of the listeners here who really go out and live in the real world, not the, the world of econometric models that they crank, crank through in Washington, uh, Washington, New York, and other places, we know that inflation is here. We know it's not <laughs> terribly different from the 70s, with the exception of housing going south right now instead of skyrocketing like then. But yeah, so I think, I think comparison to the 70s, uh, are appropriate, except for uh, our deficits are vastly higher. I mean, they're they're so far beyond the scope of uh, what the Nixon, Ford, or Carter uh, administrations did. Yeah, I also think even the housing it, it looks different, but it's really not. Like back then, it looked like the housing market was going crazy because there were less houses and there were enough people needing houses to keep a demand, interest rates were sky high, so it made uh, housing seem very expensive. But today, the only reason we're not in that scenario is we built a crap ton of houses between 1979 and 2009, and we have a surplus of inventory, and it doesn't matter. The interest rates are low. There's no one there to buy them. If you if you lose your house, you don't go buy one tomorrow, Not not anymore anyway. Yeah, and, and I think a lot of uh, younger people and probably retirees are staying away from the market as well. So not only do we have a, a glut of inventory when it comes to housing, both houses and uh, single-family homes and condominiums, we also have uh, diminished interest not only because of unemployment being high, uh, but also a lot of people are saying, you know, it's not a nest egg anymore. It's not It's not an investment. And it's like, well, if it's not an investment, uh, what, if I've got a, particularly if I have a career that's going to move me around, why am I going to jump in and out of houses? Why don't I just go ahead and rent, save myself the headache and keep from tying up my money in a market that's going down or sideways? What do you think people should be doing right now to protect themselves as best they can? That is a really, really good question, and I have to ask myself it every single day. Uh, there are so many things going on right now. If uh, Just looking on, I'm not an investment advisor, and I don't want to claim so, but I will say that uh, I'm completely hamstrung on uh, on what to do personally. Uh, would you like me to give you an, an off-the-wall example of how sure. dif- difficult this can be? Now, a lot of people have called for and believe that uh, with the Massive money printing scheme that uh, Ben Bernanke, helicopter Ben Bernanke, as some call them, have done sprinkling dollars all over the the world, uh, that that's going to lead to hyperinflation. Well, maybe and uh, maybe not. It depends on what the money does. Now, I'm a I'm a big fan of an economist. Uh, perhaps you've heard of him, Nobel laureate Robert Mundell from Canada. Uh, yep. He was call, called the father of supply-side economics and an advisor to John F. Kennedy, and he also helped set up uh, the Eurozone. He's gone back and taken a look at the uh, the financial crisis, and a lot of people were saying, oh, we're going to have hyperinflation, 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 and they bet their money that way. And what happened, though, is our Federal Reserve doesn't worry itself with exchange rate uh, the exchange rate with the euro or other currencies. And they slowed down their printing and slowed down their easing on their interest rates. In just a period of weeks, the dollar spiked 30%. That, Robert Mundell says, is the origin of the real big financial meltdown that led to TARP. This uh, exchange rate problem that we had led to a sudden shortage of liquidity. So he attributes uh, the Federal Reserve and this error that it made in the summer of 2008 from having taken a, uh, a fairly normal recession from 
the overbuilding construction and converted it and turned it into a serious financial crisis. Uh, so the reason why I mention this and what it had, what applicability it has in my thinking today is that we don't know what the policymakers are going to do. And in this case, people who were betting against the dollar, uh, <laughs> they got hammered. You know, they saw that they saw the housing bubble coming. They were betting against the dollar. And it turns out that they just absolutely got slaughtered. And that's what scares me right now with the euro going crazy and the dollar going crazy. You know, I I really don't know what you can do. Uh, and, and I'm talking short term here. And as far as sure. long as far as long term th- uh, things that people can do, well, they need to listen to the survival podcast because <laughs> you, you've got a lot. lot uh, you've spent more time pondering this uh, than I have. As you've said, you know, maybe maybe it'll happen. Maybe it won't. Maybe we'll actually get some sensible policymakers. Maybe we'll we will not. Uh, but you have to prepare for this uh, this possibility that we're going to look like Greece. Well, I you think know. we're in for misery, but we're in for one of two types of misery. Either we all get together and go, okay, we really screwed this up, and we're going to have to fix it. And the plane is going down. And we are going to take the plane down, and everybody's going to assume crash positions, and we are going to do the best we can to keep the damn thing together as it hits the ground, but it is going to go down. Or we're going to ignore the flashing, blinking lights, and then sooner or later the plane's going to go down by itself, and it's going to be an uncontrolled crash. And I think we get to choose between those two, and I'm not saying it's 2015 or 2029, I don't know when, but one of those two scenarios is going to happen And the way I feel, no one's willing to participate in landing the plane. Everybody wants to just keep drinking and hope, well, I'll kick off before the plane crashes. Yeah, well, the problem is is that right now, if you look at the advice or listen to the advice that's given to the policymakers, if you read a lot of a lot of stuff there, Paul Krugman and so on and so forth, the policymakers are still being told by a lot of the the, the heavy hitting economists that uh, that oh the, there are plenty of ways out of this. In other words, they're saying that this A B scenario that you're set, setting forward really isn't the case. And so there's uh, some academic cover for policymakers to say, oh no, well we we've got plenty of time to deal with this. And yes, we have a debt problem, but we still need to spend a lot to keep the economy going. So. You know, and the rest of us are going, okay, I thought we were in a recovery. Exactly when is the economy going to be strong enough that we can start easing off the, uh, the stimulus Kool-Aid? <laughs> you know, but, uh. Well, so- what is your feeling on the entire structure of the currency in the first place? To me, this is all, to, to me, I, I'm sorry, but it's all bullshit about fixing anything as long as we have a currency that is debt. I don't care if it's fiat, I don't care if it's gold back, I don't care what it is, but if the currency carries debt, by its very existence, it's mathematically impossible to pay off the debt, and as the debt multiplies, the impossibility expands. Yeah, absolutely. Either that or they're just going to uh, go with crazy inflation or devaluation, as, as they, they like to say, yeah. which, is, which, which essentially is an enormous tax. And what I really don't like when they start going down that road is – Take a guess, and you're, you, I'm starting to get fired up in here. If we had, if we had uh, video going with you, you'd see me in my basement waving my finger around <laughs> because I get pretty amped up about this. But the, the problem is, is who benefits when uh, we have periods of high inflation? Well, the government, of course, because their debt is getting excused. Correct. But, but also, 
the the wealthiest investors. And I don't have a, any problem against wealthy investors, mind you. I don't have any more. I have no problem with that. But the reality is they're in a better position to know how to do the inflation play. But what about the poor? What about senior citizens? Senior citizens, the the rate of cost during inflationary periods, the rate of buying uh, of prices goes up. There, you've got grandma and grandpa have a small savings, you know, whatever it happens to be, and they're simply, you know, they're in their seventies. They don't want to be rolling the dice on Wall Street. What they want is they want CDs and money markets and stuff like this to protect their value. And then the Fed comes along and clobbers it. And so essentially what it is, it is it, it turns into, in practice, a highly regressive tax in which the poor and senior citizens and young families end up paying the tax because they are the losers on the inflation game. And the wealthy and, the, and our bloated federal government are the winners in this game. And that, to me, is just a fundamentally corrupt system. And that's, that is what leads to unrest. I mean, ask what happened to Egypt when they started seeing uh, <laughs> seeing uh, inflation really take off and hit the common man? Well, Hosni Mubarak got thrown out on his ear. So that and he's lucky got, he didn't get Qaddafiized by people. That, he's lucky he got out. You know? Yeah, I I don't even have any idea where he went. I don't frankly care. He's probably but, not going <laughs> to tell anybody where he went. He probably well, I, a couple billion dollars into a suitcase and hauled ass. I mean, it's, it, it, if I were him, at first I would have never done it. But if I ended up in that situation, that's what I would have done. I would have left long before he did. I would have saw the writing on the wall. I would have extorted as much of the money as I could. And I would have went off to Fiji or Tahiti with a new ID. Um, because, yeah, he, I'm actually surprised he did escape, honestly. I think people wanted his head. Um But, yeah, I mean, how do you feel about all this stuff, like, going on with Occupy Wall Street? I had a pretty negative view of the whole thing at first, and I still have some real concerns. I watched a thing last night on a show called Vanguard, on, on it's this new network called Current, and these guys went and lived with these people. I was shocked at some of the people there. They weren't all a bunch of hippie college kids the way the news tells us. There were people that were in their 50s, 60s. There were some people that were retired military, and they had money, but they were there because of what they saw happen to their families. And everything that these people said was true about the injustice, but nobody had an answer to my single question to the whole thing, what do you want? And, and my fear is when you have a group of people like that and they don't actually know what would make them happy, it's, it's a powder keg. Yes, that's, that's absolutely right. It just becomes, uh, you know, really a mob. Now, one of the things, and I was talking with some people about this just recently, and I am, uh, as a political libertarian, economic libertarian, uh, I have a lot of very uh, sympathetic views for their observations. I believe that a lot of the crony, crony capitalism, as I like to call it, the crony capitalism between Wall Street and Washington is rampant. Uh, our monetary system is run by a bank, the Federal Reserve Bank, which bankers set up in the early 20th century. And so it's no surprise, as the quote-unquote lender of uh, last resort, that the Federal Reserve, of course, bailed out the banks. And they're bailing them out now, and they'll bail them out again. And we just know how that how that game is played. Uh, but yeah, so the, so the Occupy Wall Street folks, in my opinion, had some really basically uh, correct observations that I agree with. But they... To the extent that they had things, have things, I shouldn't say had, it's not completely gone, and I'm sure that they, the people still feel the way, uh, same way. But fundamentally, I disagree with, uh, 
what conclusions they were drawing. You know, we have a financial meltdown. Well, we want more regulations. Well, how about we just end bailouts and wipe out the banks and let uh, free market forces teach these cats a lesson instead of, you know, adding on more regulations, which don't ever seem to cause the underlying problem. So that's just an example of, you know, if you have power in Washington, which we have a lot of, ultimately it's like moths to a light. Who do you think is going to come there? People who who can see and envision ways that they can use that power to their advantage. And just as a very fundamental proposition, the more power you have concentrated in a single place, the more corruption you're going to draw in because there's more power to uh, to dole out. And the Occupy folks seem to be heading in the direction of more government. And I'm just thinking and more you know, socialism for that. Yeah. Yeah, I'm thinking you're going in the wrong direction. You're Take what they have and give it to us. And that never works out good for anybody. In fact, the only people that actually works out good for are the elites themselves. Because even in the, in the Soviet Union, at the height of communism, the elites were still the elites. And the elites still had everything. And the take from the rich gift to the poor gave everybody else less. Hey, it's, you know, here's the thing. When I watched that episode, um, Ted, it was... When they first said it, they they set up the whole thing. They said some things I never heard before, and one was that this thing actually started from a media group or a website or something that's in Canada, and and that this this site put out tweets and all this that called people to do this. And what they said in the beginning that they wanted to do was separate the money from government, so get the the the, the financing and money and big pack money out of government, so government is here and money is there. And I thought that sounds awesome. Why don't any of these people in the streets know that? I I have no idea. You know, I had some Facebook debates with some people who were involved with and or sympathetic, and they're just not seeing that. They're not seeing that that, and that's why I say to increase the power of Washington and to and to get Washington to have their fingers on more of the money because in the in the process of the redistribution or whatever they're going excuse me, uh, whatever they're going to do, you know darn well that there's going to be a whole world of corruption there. And they're, they're just not seeing that, that that's the problem is when there's power and money to dole, dole out, uh, then the corruption is inevitable. Uh, one way, e- even legal corruption. I mean, there's a lot of things that go on that are perfectly legal, but in my, in my mind, economically and morally corrupt. Uh, so, so yes, if they want to separate the money and the government, Absolutely. But first thing you've got to do is you've got to shrink that government some or at least the amount of power that they can uh, exert over people's lives, over businesses, uh, so on and so forth. So they quit playing favorites, picking winners and losers and so on and so forth. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I mean, I just thought, you know, if I would have heard that from the beginning, I would have said, you know, I can throw my empire behind that. That, but, but, but the people out there had no idea that that's apparently what the initial initiator had called for. It's, uh, it's, it's kind of sad because like a lot of people, I wanted it to be something good and I just could never see anything good coming from it. Yeah, I, I had, I had hopes for it, uh, as well, uh, particularly based on the initial complaints. In other words, the, the set of facts that they were working with that was driving them, uh, to the streets. It's like, I agree with you on those very points, but then they just, uh, they went 180 degrees. Now, a lot of the people were showing up agreeing on the basic facts, but again, I don't think any of them really had an idea of what the original intent was. They didn't know what necessarily what their intent was. You, you would see all sorts of varying lists of I want, I want, I want, I want, and uh, 
you know, it just seemed to be more motivated by a generalized but legitimate anger, but really no focus in, in terms of accomplishing something. You know, in line with your novel, does it show us the, let's call it the underlying danger that we can expect long term? Because you look at something like this and you say, well, what happens when all of these things they're bitching about and are upset about? And if you, if you watch this thing I watch, it's pretty amazing how dedicated these people were and how organized they were, not with a message, but with taking care of themselves, keeping things clean, serving meals, all of this stuff. What happens when it's ten times worse? What happens when the little town they showed with all the storefronts is all the little towns? It, it, you know, is that kind of like a, a warning sign for us? Yeah, I do. I do think the uh, the Occupy movement is uh, is if, if it's a thermometer, and what you're seeing with that is, you know, you you want your you want, if I could draw some so, sort of analogy, you want the temperature of of the running, the, the the social mood to be running on the cool side. You want everyone cool, calm, and collect. And the Occupy movement uh, is showing, and the Tea Party movement as well is showing that each one of these. Uh, protest movements against the the establishment what you're seeing is that the thermometer the the temperature is rising that mercury the red mercury is going up right now so that's that's what i see and uh in the eagle has crashed uh let's just say it go it goes the the mercury goes to the top yeah and that's my concern is that the mercury goes to the top um and I, all I see out of this is uh, more government control. I mean, unless they're actually broke, like, you know, at the end. Uh, but if, the, if this actually, if, let's say the mercury goes to the top before the crisis goes to the top, all that does is give them an excuse to, quote, unquote, crack down and just keep doing more of what they've been doing. Yeah, absolutely. Let's bust out some obscure sections of the Patriot Act, call them terrorists, and lock them up without an attorney or trial. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. they've got an awful lot of weapons at their disposal if they think this is uh, some sort of uh, police state is necessary to restore control. Uh, so, yeah, so as, as an individual, that's that's one of the reasons why I try to, to keep a calm head. You know, I've done some... Uh, I wouldn't say some some marches and things down in Columbus here in my home state of Ohio for various issues, but I always try and keep a calm head because the last thing I want to do is uh, give the powers that be, get them frightened, and because a frightened animal, well, you know what they are. And so if uh, officials are feeling frightened and threatened by society, uh, that that's really a worst-case scenario. Yeah, um, I, I, I had to laugh. Uh, Pennsylvania Governor Ed Rendell, after the uh, t the, uh, the Occupy Wall Street thing ran for a while, said uh, something to the effect as a message to them, okay, you guys have everybody's attention, now go home and work on getting Obama elected. And I was thinking, you know, t talk about a disconnect, serious disconnect with reality. And I think that lines up to eventually be that fear, because when you realize, oh, they're not our friends either, um, then you get really afraid. Yeah, yeah. No, I, did, I didn't hear that comment from him, but uh, that was, yeah. it was hilarious, really. I mean, yeah, it was... yeah, well, well, that unfortunately, unfortunately, really, really hits home the point uh, when I said earlier uh, that what we need to deal with this, whether it be resolving the crisis before it happens or managing it and minimizing the impact, well, when it occurs, is you you really need good leadership, and if Governor Rendell's solution to some underlying grassroots anger 
is focused on one political candidate and getting elected, you know the lens at which he looks through uh, at the world, which is electoral politics. Sure. And, sure. And, and that and electoral politics are one one of the roots behind this. You know, the the thirty year folks who are in there uh, just doling out what they can and uh, going home and getting uh, reelected, and that's seems to be uh, their their career choice, and and that's what's getting us into trouble. Yeah, I have a solution to the government money problem. It's kind of like a fanatical, never-happened solution, but it actually would work. And that is that in this day and age, nobody needs any contributions for campaigns anymore at all. The people that want to vote know they can get information on candidates if they want it. So we take $1 million a year to fund a giant data center that provides everything we need for a website for every politician or potential uh, person to get elected. You get your own little page. People go there. They stick in their voting district. It says, here's all the people voting for you. Each person has a YouTube channel. You can watch them put out their information. You pick and choose, and you go vote on Election Day. And nobody gets any more flipping money whatsoever from any company or any contribution. No more signs. No more nothing. If you care, go look. And if we did that... All of this, this soft money, all of this financing money, all of this bribery money that's been legalized in, by being called contributions and war chests is gone. And then the finance and the government are separated for eternity. Yeah, to give you an idea of uh, my very optimistic view of things, as soon as you started going through this, I immediately started thinking, hmm, what's the workaround to this? <laughs> I understand because you know you political know. action committees and all. You just it's all no nobody gets to do that anymore. You don't you can't you can't spend money on an election. Nobody can spend any money on an election. If you want to put something out, here's a free place to put out anything you want, anything you can, or you're done. You put out information with money, you use money for it, you go to jail or you go to Korea. How about that? That that's worse than jail. You go to North Korea. <laughs> <laughs> There we there we go. Or, or Myanmar, that would be just about as pleasant. Uh, but that's, it's it's an interesting idea. I don't I don't know how uh, I don't how work, you do it to that layer that I'm talking about. But I'm a capitalist and I'm a libertarian, and I believe the solution that works best is the one that wins out. So if we did some more moderate form of campaign finance reform. And the government set up that system. So, but they won't because they don't want it, right? But if we did and we set that up and we said, here's your medium, uh, all, in all these debates where they leave a guy out because they don't think he's valid or whatever, everybody well, I, well, way, jump ball, go for it, you know? I think we gotta, I know we're off topic, but I think we gotta fix the primaries too. The fact that Iowa and New Hampshire are so important to the entire rest of the country on a nomination is insane to me. Um, I'd like to hear what you think of this, right? Because I know we're kind of very similar in thought. Um, I would fix it by creating four regions, one, two, three, and four, northeast, southeast, northwest, southwest. And one year, region one goes first. Next year, region two, and they're divided up equally, equal share. So there's like four Super Tuesdays, and that's it. And it rotates every year, and candidates get a chance to build things up, but no more of this one state here, one state there. You run it however you want, but you're going to do it on this day. Yeah, so you're saying that the, uh, if I'm understanding correctly, the, uh, these would be in, uh, four separate years? No, no, no. Four separate, um, Tuesdays, let's call them, right? Okay, so, all right, perfect. run the primaries say. over two months, and it's the first and fifteenth of one month, and then the first and fifteenth of the second month. And let's say this year, 
New England, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, that Region 1 goes first, then Region 2, the Southeast, then Region 3, then Region 4. Now, next election cycle, right? So now we've gotten through that one, the nominees, we go to the polls and everything. Now, the next time we do it again, now Region 2 starts out first. So that way, somebody goes first a different time. So, like, one part of the country doesn't get to constantly be the bellwether. Uh, because people in Iowa and people in Arkansas think quite differently, trust me. Oh yeah, I've lived in a, uh, I've lived in Idaho, Ohio, uh, Pennsylvania, Virginia, and Florida, and Miami, Florida. Let me, let me tell you, people in Miami, Florida think a little different from people in Northern Idaho. That's, <laughs> that's just a, a, a very basic fact. No, I, I like your, the, uh, the basic fundamental idea that you're presenting here. Uh, I mean, the details are somewhat irrelevant, but the idea of, Limiting the amount of time and also giving everybody a fair shot. Mm-hmm. What's, what's even more troubling to me is the way the primaries keep getting earlier and earlier and earlier, which means filing deadlines keep getting earlier and earlier and earlier. I think that's maybe part of the reason why we're seeing the quality of candidates uh, deteriorate somewhat because these campaigns are so unbelievably long uh, and I mean, they're, they're also grueling through the vetting process, but uh, you're realistically talking about spending at least a year and a half of your life working 70 or 80 hours a day <laughs> or yeah. a week or a week trying to get yourself elected. And every time you move a primary forward, which I know Iowa and New Hampshire uh, already did, my state of Ohio has moved it forward. And, you know, it's, you know, if you want to run for, uh, you know, U.S. Senate, why in the world do you need to have uh, your petition filed with the Ohio Board of Elections 11 months a- ahead of time? It doesn't make you know? sense. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it really, you know, it doesn't give you a chance to really see wh- what the field is, whether or not you're you're really inspired to go ahead and say, listen, these guys are a bunch of morons uh, or gals. Don't, didn't want to sound sexist there. The guys or gals that have thrown, <laughs> thrown their hat in the ring are are fools, and I guess I, I have to do my public duty and try and, you know, do this. Uh, yeah. At least at least that's the way it used to work. Uh, people would consider it to be public service and a, and a duty to the country to do it. Now it seems to be revolving an awful lot more about the money. But So anyhow, yeah, I, I like your basic idea, especially if you would go ahead and push them into uh, – you know, further or sure. further future. March March, 1, March 15, April 1, April 15. And we're All wrapped right. up by the end of April and we're done. I'm, I'm on board. All right. We're, we're, can we call this the Spirko Laxanen plan? Can we go Excellent, ahead? man. I would, I would really <laughs> enjoy that, Ted. That would be great. If, especially if somebody would actually do it. It just, to me, it seems like a more judicious use. And I just think that the, the, the campaign tactics that are currently used are based on winning a single state early on. And then if I can win a couple, then I can become the leader in other people's minds and I'll get other states. And then, you know, we get to the primaries in Texas and people are like, last time, like, Jack, you going to go vote? I'm like, well, I'm going to go, but I really don't think I should. And they're like, why? I'm like, because it's, it, what I do doesn't matter at all. You know, and everybody says, well, every vote counts. Well, well, not, not really because the nominees all, the nomination's already secured. So I'm going to vote for nominees for state senate and stuff like that. And I almost walked over and, 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 and voted in the Democrat side and voted for Clinton to, to try to stay away from Obama because as bad as one was, I thought the other one would hurt. <laughs> um, because it felt like it actually – that was still up for grabs, right? Like so, But what I'm saying is like for a lot of people around the country, you try to get them motivated politically. But if they know that the, the race is over before they even get to vote, they're not real motivated. 
Yeah, and they also did not participate in the in the selection process. Correct. That's what get you, that's what gets me uh, because not I mean basically what Ohio, Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina always comes third is they're basically saying we get to set the tone for the rest of the country. Correct, and that that's what pisses. In fact, honestly, maybe my four plank plan is bad. Maybe you just say, you know what, we have a general election on one day. Everybody's primaries are the same week. I don't, you know, give them some flexibility. You, you do it this week or over these two weeks, and that that's your time. And, and, and go out and make your case to the country, not to Iowa. Nothing against Iowa, but I don't live there. You know, you know uh, so you have a guy, you know, Rick Santorum just suddenly got onto everyone's head. Well, he uh, made, visited all 99 counties, made 300, 400 stops, and he can't do that for the rest of the time, but he was able to do it. Now, all of a sudden, uh, just by virtue of uh, coming in se- very close second, he's managed to throw himself big into the headlines, sure. big into the headlines, and when really what he did was an unrepeatable strategy. Absolutely, but- absolutely. And, you know, I mean, I, when I look at that, I, I look, these guys run their campaigns in the early states as though they're running for governor of those states. So they talk, everything that they're doing is targeted to that state's needs. Well, you're not running for governor of Iowa, you're running for president of the United States. Correct. And, uh, yeah, that's why, that's why it's just kind of troubling. The only decent thing, I guess you could say, is that between Iowa, New Hampshire, and South Carolina, at least they're in different regions. I mean, so it gives you something of a little, little bit of a cross section. But yeah, I, I think between the uh, primaries taking place so early and having undue weight placed on a uh, handful of states, I mean, realistically, even though, I mean, New Hampshire has how many uh, electoral votes? Not very it's many. It's not many. It's like three or seven or yeah. something. It's not a lot. Yeah. But but they but they still carry a lot of weight by virtue of if someone goes and campaigns hard and wins there, all of a sudden they're getting headlines. Sure. Uh, even though even though realistically, if it were the general election, it would only be three electoral votes. So yeah. yeah. Hey, um, I was wondering, could you uh, tell people a little bit about your website? You have a website called CountryThinker.com. It's pretty cool. Oh well, thank you, thank you. Uh, yeah, I'm. A uh, blogger, uh, and I, I write on the combined areas of politics, law, and economics. Politics, everybody has an opinion about. Uh, law, since, as I said, I'm a recovering attorney and used to work at a uh, major law firm, I bring a kind of a different angle in the blogging world. Not a lot of people can uh, speak knowledgeably on, on law. And then the economics, uh, you know, a lot of self-education, self-education there, so I call myself an economic thinker. And anyway, um, my name that I use in the uh, blogging world is The Country Thinker. Now, it does turn out that I do live in the country. I've got a cow pasture on one side, a soybean field across the road, and another soybean field behind my property. So I really am a, uh, a, a country guy. But specifically, it's referring to the country class. And the country class, and this comes from the work of a professor of political science, I believe Boston University by the name of Angelo Cotavia. And he came up with this distinction. Many of you will know the first term, the ruling class. And the ruling class are those who uh, are in politics, those who are influential, such as the Wall Street banks and so on and so forth, the uh, big union leaders. The ruling class are the ones who play, uh, really pull the strings in this country. 
the country class is the rest of us. So the country class even includes urban dwellers uh, and so on and so forth. If you're just a working class, if you're listening right now and you, and you're in Denver, Colorado, and you work as a plumber, you're country class. You don't you don't <laughs> you don't have much say in Washington or really within in your own state. So that's what the country thinker specifically refers to because. Again, having a law degree and a history degree before that, I, I am a thinker. So it's the country, you could say the country class thinker. The real 99%. That's right. Country class is the real 99% because when I see some of these people out there saying they're the 99%, I'm like, no, you're not. But in a way, yeah, they are. And I think that the way you're explaining it makes it make a lot more sense. I, I also think that like, when I think about in the country, I was thinking of this documentary I just watched, which I said changed a lot of my perceptions about Occupy. And I look around, like when I go down to Dallas, Fort Worth, to see my family down there, and I look around that city and I go, anybody here that wants a job can get a job. And I really believe that. I really believe if you're in Dallas, Texas right now, and you can't find a job, either you've got your head up your fourth point of contact, or you're not trying hard enough. Then I look at these towns across these Midwestern towns and they go, you go down a main street of the town and every window is empty. And I think, well, where's the guy going to go look for a job there? The only choice they have is to leave. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely right. Either, either that or become an entrepreneur, but they're, who are you going to sell to when you're in a place where no one has a job? (laughs) The one guy they interviewed said, man, if it wasn't for the prison, no one would have a job around here. So the only job in that town left is, is working for the prison system. Well, that's, that's absolutely inspiring, but (laughs) talk about great, great job prospects. And really, uh, you know, when you talk about that, uh, the depressed generation is, uh, is, is a big concern of mine. Uh, when we get to the, uh, get to, you know, hard times, the, this kind of vagrancy and having no sense of future. And that's what you're seeing in Greece, by the way. So I kind of want to relate this back to the, the book a little bit. Uh, in Greece, there are the, the younger generations when they interview them and they talk to them, particularly when they've had some of the major votes and they've been protesting outside, side there, they're looking at it. And, and this is what really fears me. Uh, I'm afraid of for, for my son is they're looking at with this massive debt that they've got, even if they try and inflate their way out, it's going to take a very long time. And there's, and the young people in Greece are saying, we have no future. And they may sound like, uh, sound like, uh, oh, what's the, the sex pistols when they say that or some 70s punk band. But unfortunately, they're really kind of right. They really, you know, they're going to have extraordinary tax burdens, very few job opportunities, and they're depressed and they don't, and they have a lot of time on their hands and they're acting out violently over there. That's what I'm really afraid of. And that's, you know, the, the towns that you're talking about where the people have, uh, Nothing to do. Well, if they want to leave, they still can probably go to Dallas and find a job. But what happens when there's no jobs in Dallas either? Well, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, what it makes me think of is like Juarez, right? So Juarez was this little podunk town. And then NAFTA went through. And then jobs came to Juarez. And then people left the countryside of Mexico and went to Juarez. And it grew as a boom town. And then the, the economic collapse happens in the United States. And Juarez turns into something that makes, you know the eight mile look like Beverly Hills and people are shooting each other there. And they interview these young kids that are 14, 15, 16. They're all packing heat. And they say, do you want to work for their cartels? And they're all like, see, see, see. And they're like, why? And it's just, I can get a house and I can get money. And it's the only thing that's left for them. And it's, it's a very 
dark prophecy for the way things can go here. Yeah, uh, there's a character in the book who there is one younger character in there, the uh, daughter of the survivalist cu- couple that I have that they do quite well. But their daughter is um, being in her early 20s. She's quite insistent that she's going to leave the countryside and she's going back to Columbus and she's going to make a go at it any way she can. And you can't blame a 20 year old for not wanting to go back to live on mom and dad's uh, survivalist compound. She's 20. She's doing what you should be doing, which is striking out on your own. But she keeps swinging and missing, swinging and missing, nothing sticking. There's nothing there. The jobs are going away, evaporating. Every time she turns around, jobs, the job situation just gets worse. And without uh, getting into the details, she ends up to re- resorting to some, uh, some things that you really would not want your daughter to do to try and uh, make ends meet. So, and that happens all the time, folks. Yeah, and and that's uh, and, and just to hint at it, let's just go ahead and say, uh, I think you would would agree with me that uh, the morality of the kids coming up right now, in general, there's some wonderful kids, but in general, uh, they would say that uh, our our generations were prudish compared to to how they are. So, and that scares the hell out of me when I think about what I was like when I was 20. If that was prudish, I, you know, wow, because um, you know we weren't exactly leave it to beaver generation. Correct. No, I, I agree with you, but uh, but they they do. I live in a college town, Kenyon College, uh, which Paul Newman is pro- probably the most recognizable name to have uh, come out of there. That's just a mile or so away, and a lot of the kids are really nice, but a lot of them do some really crazy stuff that I suppose when I was a 20-year-old male, I would like to have had happened, but yeah. <laughs> but didn't. Yeah. But it happens, to, it happens to a lot of these these, these uh, young folks. And yeah, well, we, we, missed, we missed the free love of the 60s. I guess they got it back, and, and we got nothing. <laughs> you know? We got the bill. We got yeah. the bill for both of them. Yeah, that's, well, that's Gen X. That's where we're at with the crossroads. That's why it's an X. We get the bill for the previous generation and the future one. Yay us. <laughs> there, there we go. There, you know. Although get, getting back to the social security discussion and uh, um, back onto that topic, this is where I kind of feel bad for the baby boomers. The way I, well, express- I do too. I'm not putting them down. I'm just saying it's oh, the reality, you know. Yeah. Well, well, this 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 is the way I look at it. And uh, since social security more or less works as an entitlement, like I said, and the, and then the whole idea that it was a uh, savings program always was a joke. I say that uh, the baby boomers got overcharged. And when I say that, uh, because they, they put together that phony baloney trust fund for them. That Well, that trust fund to me, if you're only responsible to be taking care of the retirees of your that are retired during your working years, then quote unquote, pulling money aside to save for you, but then, then actually spending it, it's like, no, they should have not ever been charged so much for their social security that there was that this excess amount that got spent. But now they're entering, now that the money is gone, so the, the question becomes, and this is where there may become a generational rift, and I, I can see it, uh, I can see it happening, where, uh, it's gonna be, alright, do we go ahead and suddenly jack up the retirement age and stick it to the baby boomers again? Or do we go ahead and have a massive increase in social security taxes and stick it to generations X, Y, and the millennials? Sure, so, sure. So, 
So the way it's shaping up in my mind is it's like, all right, baby boomers have already got stuck once. They paid more than they should have. The Washington blew it all. And are we going to stick it to them again or are we going to stick the other ones? And that's really what that's what I don't like about the direction we're heading is when you start having groups pitted against one another, I, when you start getting identity politics, yep. class politics, genera- cross-generational politics, this kind of stuff. It's like, no, we're, we're all Americans. I just don't like to hear this kind of who are we going to stick it to. And we that, did it already. We did it in the 80s. That's how Reagan quote unquote saved Social Security. He just charged more. You know, right. and, and it all, all it did was, and that was the thing, nobody fixed it. The, the problem is the, the money becoming immediately available to the general fund. And no one, so I don't think, I think if you want to get anybody to be willing to take any of the sacrifice, then you have to, just like they want to do immigration reform. Okay, fix the problem, then we can talk about reforming what, what's here. And that's what I see with the financial problems. You want us to fix it by by keeping it going the way that it is. But I think what Americans are hopefully waking up to is, no, you fix the bad part. You fix the thing that got us here, and then we can talk about everybody putting some skin in the game. Yeah, you know, the way I call it, uh, the way I describe it is politicians like to put Band-Aids on broken legs. I'm sorry, doctor, but you've got to diagnose the problem before you can even come up with the solution. And all I keep hearing out of Washington when I'm waving, by the way, I'm waving my finger down here again. Now I'm, act, I'm actually standing and pacing, too. So I'm getting kind of fired up here. Uh, anyhow, so what you hear politicians is what can we do to, you know, to save it? What I don't like about when they say save it, that means save it more or less as it is. What, what, uh, what little trimming around the edges can we do to more or less keep it just like it is, even though it's basically broken and it really was not a well-built system in the first place. And that's why I say we need some good leaders who are willing to go ahead and, uh, and, you know, Go ahead and they call, they call the entitlements the third rail of politics. Somebody who can go ahead and put on that thick rubber glove like a, uh, like a lineman, go ahead and grab that third rail and go ahead and make the case as to what we really need to do to fundamentally fix the problem. Yeah, and I think that people, I think people, see, they all think that no one would get on board with it. I think people would if you actually, the thing is no one believes them. They've lost complete credibility, and that's why no one – I think a lot of politicians talk now. It doesn't even matter anymore. I think more and more people are either polarizing to one end or the other, and a whole bunch of us in the middle are just going, we don't care what y'all have to say anymore, and that's kind of a sad state for a republic to be in. I think we've pretty much covered everything today, far more than I thought we would. Uh, Ted, you want to tell folks how they can get your book? Yeah, uh, if you want to visit my blog, it is just countrythinker.com. Now, for the, the book itself, you can get it in paperback format at my publishing site. Those of you survivalists will, will like that, uh, a, an up and coming author is willing to go ahead and put in the extra work and try and make a little extra money on his, uh, on his project and keep it out of the hands of the publishing houses. And that is clearpeakpress.com. Clear like a clear mountain stream, peak like a mountain peak, dot com, or press dot com. So clearpeakpress.com. Now, it's also available at Amazon in both paper uh, format and for the Kindle. It's at barnesandnoble.com, again, paperback, and for the Nook. And then also at smashwords.com, smashwords.com. You can get just about any electronic format for any device that you could possibly have your iPads and uh, 
even nooks and kindles and all all those various devices so at the present moment that is uh those are the various locations where it's available look at you with a bonus i never heard of smashwords before i'm gonna have to check that out so thanks for the little extra bit of info at the end hey ted it's been a great conversation you might be the country thinker but i think you and the uh survival podcaster think quite a bit alike man thanks for joining us today and i hope people check out your site and your book i'll be putting links to both uh in today's show notes Wonderful, and it's been an absolute pleasure to be here, and thank you for giving me the opportunity to uh, share the project, uh, share my novel with your listeners. Great. Well, with that, folks, this has been Jack Spirico today along with Ted, Ted Lackerson, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Yeah.